Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansom. The frontier. The edge of civilization. So far from the central government that laws are more like guidelines. Where the sheriffs are crooked and the criminals ruthless. Trains rarely go unsacked. And the cattle drive never goes to plan. Oh, and don't forget the drought. Life on the frontier is never easy. But what about life on the final frontier? Westerns were a popular and established genre by the time the first Western hit cinemas in 1903 with the Great Train Robbery. But it is the 50s and 60s we remember most when we reminisce on this genre. And while there's a lot to love, women often got a raw deal if they happened to appear at all. Many modern Westerns have done little to critically engage with their heritage, though some progress is being made. But what about genre mashups? Science fiction westerns have grown in popularity, from traditional tropes like the gunslinger appearing in Star Wars, to all-out mixed-genre vehicles like Firefly. Are sci-fi westerns giving us a frontier friendlier to women? What about other minorities? In this episode, we are joined by author Stark Holborn, whose latest novel, Ten Low, is a sci-fi western with a queer non-society and women feature front and centre. Stark, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks for that amazing introduction. Uh, Yes, I would. I'm Stark Colburn. I'm um, a novelist, I'm a games writer, and I'm also an occasional film reviewer. Um, I'm the author of Nunslinger, published by Hodder, uh, the Trigonometry series, which is self-published, and also, uh, like you said, my brand new um, space western, Ten Low, which is literally just out from Titan Books, like two days ago. Um, So that's very exciting. Uh, Yes, well, I was very lucky to get an early copy of Ten Low, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too if they happen to go and purchase a copy. Oh, that is very kind. Thank you for reading it. It's um, I'm still in the early stages of having the book being released into the wilds of the world. So I'm um, very intrigued to see what people think of it, really. Because like you say, it is a sort of genre mashup that's not particularly seen too often, I think. Yes. And we do know that uh, publishing loves to lean on things that have gone before. So it's always a bit risky when they do something a bit different. But uh, here on this show, we are big fans of doing something a little bit differently. (laughs) So Westerns, you know, they are set in frontiers, the far reaches of civilizations, um, you know, if you can even call it that, you know, like I said, where the strict rules of society doesn't apply anymore and you know this these tough conditions can breed hardness in people but that doesn't always have to mean that the society that will form in places like this has to be you know in an equal one based on gender or or anything really but the we see time and time again obviously in original westerns but also in the kind of sci-fi um space western mashups that we we seeing more of they keep 
regurgitating this idea that we'll just get more and more patriarchy. It will just be kind of extreme versions of patriarchy that's even more dystopian and horrible than than what we even have in, in real life. I mean, why are we so convinced that these kind of rough environments will only produce patriarchy? It's really interesting. Like, and I, thinking about it, I did some thinking about this the other day and I was trying to figure out kind of where where newer westerns kind of um more interesting westerns were coming from and it was often from outside the mainstream so i think there's a definite um leaning on these sort of very patriarchal traditional conservative tropes that you actually find the majority of the time in mainstream cinema in mainstream tv um and i saw someone talking about sort of jeff bezos's rules for a successful show which you know depended on um you know, a strong hero and then a very villainous antagonist and stuff like that. So I think often the progress isn't being made in the mainstream kind of examples of the genre, but you start looking outside of it to lower budget films, off Hollywood, um, indie indie productions and stuff. And then suddenly you find all these interesting examples. So um, there's a low budget sci-fi that I really, really enjoyed recently. It's called Prospect. Um, I think it was out in 2018. Super low budget, um, really well made, but um, it has, um, oh, Pedro Pascal is in it as one of the leads. The other leads a teenage girl could see. And I thought it was a really interesting example of how a character can be, can show vulnerability um, and can be a rounded character and be believable for, you know, a 16-year-old in her situation um, and still carry the film with with the sort of inner strength that she has. Um, and that, again, like I said, it's it's a low-budget production. Um, and we you see this time and time again with Kelly Reichardt, whose films I love as well, her Meeks cut-off, um, very much focused on the women in um, a party heading out across the plains um to the to really interesting degrees and she plays the cinematography to depict their position in the party um using their bonnets to kind of signify their um at the beginning their sort of constricted position um and she then builds it out into into a theme from there and she has a film which has just come out that I'm desperate to see but I haven't managed to see yet called First Cow um, which is, again, it's this one doesn't feature female characters, but I think it's important in deconstructing this idea of um, the frontier as a space of kind of macho hardness because it's a completely anti-macho film and it focuses on on two men. One's um, a Chinese-American man and the other one's a Jewish cook and they become best friends and start rustling milk to bake cakes. And that's that's the premise of the film, which I loved. I love the fact that we it's finally getting something set in uh, the frontier, as it were, um, but with a completely different viewpoint. This is really interesting because at this point, a lot of guests have, well, they started speaking about books and they've used a lot of um, literary examples, but you've used a lot of um, films and, and, and that's really interesting in itself. Like, do you feel like where we're seeing the most progress is in kind of the the lower budget film medium the art house films yeah i think and i think it's because of how weird the western genre actually is it's 
it's a very powerful genre and although it's sort of st- it's it's been deconstructed from its inception um as a myth it's incredibly powerful and it's it's a totally constructed myth and quite a recent one um that has this enduring legacy which i i, I find it fascinating because um it's it was created to uphold the idea of a, a white Christian capitalist patern, paternalistic society and to essentially cover up genocide, which had been, you know, that's about the expansion of the West. That's that's what had been happening um, to Native American tribes. And so it was kind of already a myth and kind of it, it already had its tropes as it was as it was being constructed, like its scaffolding was kind of like the early days of Hollywood, it was put up and then hastily papered over um, with these tropes of you know you know the white white hatted good hero and then the black hatted bad guy and manifest destiny and you know the every it ends in a marriage and that's all great um, and it, it's something that I mean there's an early filmmaker called Ruth Ann Baldwin and she made a film called Forty Nine Seventeen. Um, I think it was in 1917. It might have been a, a bit later, but essentially, that and the film is about um, an older man who wants to relive his youth as a 49er, as a gold rush um, kind of miner, and so he pays an acting troupe to reconstruct a whole saloon for him, and to so he can relive these early days. And you know that was made in 1917, so it already showed that people were aware that the West and the Western was a creation. Um, and I think that's been challenged and approached in film a lot more than it has in literature because you had movements like revisionist westerns and acid westerns in the 70s. There have obviously been examples in literature, but I think not in, I mean, I might be completely wrong. There might be things that I I haven't encountered, but, um, as a kind of, examination of of the genre and the medium i think you had a kind of um an approach that began in the 70s and kind of has moved on from there whereas some of the literature maybe has kind of stayed with the slightly more sort of 1950s john wayne style um approach but that i mean that's changing and it has it is changing rapidly now thank god at last um we're starting to get more books kind of re-examining the Western in the mainstream and in in kind of more popular presses. So in the last year, we've had um, How Much of These Hills is Gold um, by C. Pam Zhang. That's, and it's an amazing debut with speculative elements, um, which follows the journey of two sort of Chinese-American children in the West. And we've had um, Outlawed by Anne North, which looks at... Um, it looks at gender and and sexuality and um, the female presence in the West. And we've also had uh, Upright Women Wanted by Sarah Gailey, which again, another examination of gender stereotypes um, and kind of female representation in an alternate Western setting. So although I think previously, <laughs> going back to your question that you asked ages ago, sorry, uh, previously the movement has been more in film i think finally we are starting to see it bleed through into different into literature um and not just genre literature either i mean how much of these hills with gold was nominated for the booker so 
I just feel like I want to go and read all these things. I mean, I haven't read many modern westerns at all. The last western I read was The Sisters Brothers, and that's, you know, relatively old now. And before that, mostly my exposure to the written kind of westerns were Elmore Leonard, and I sadly got into him by way of Star Trek because that's my way into a lot of things. <laughs> that's totally valid. It's a good entry drug. We've talked about obviously how tough conditions can breed a patriarchy and that kind of society, but where do women fit into this? Because obviously where you get men, you get women, and it's sort of like where do you see them having been naturally placed in settings like this? And is there somewhere that you'd like to see them being placed slightly differently? Is there anything you'd like to see reworked about the way women fit into narratives such as this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I, when I was writing Ten Lo, my approach to that was very much, um, I, I just wanted a, a, it to be female driven, but without it necessarily having to discuss kind of female trauma or anything like that. I just wanted a majority female non-binary cast um, and a queer non-world. So that's what I did. And uh, it, it was seemed just sort of, it, I didn't particularly even think about it. It just, that's how it emerged. And that's what I wanted to write. Um, it's interesting. Has Have any of you seen The Homesman, which is a film that came out fairly recently, Tommy Lee Jones and Hilary Swank? No, but it sounds up my alley. Well, this is what I thought, right? Because it, everyone was saying, oh, it's a feminist Western. And um, I don't know, you might, you might think differently. But to me, it totally failed in that regard. Um, the, the premise of the story is these three women as part of this township have all gone mad. The frontier has driven them all mad in different ways. And they must be shipped back east where they can be looked after in the east because uh, they're no use anymore in the West. And then Hilary Swank is the one woman in this town who's strong enough to sort of take them on this journey. Um, and I won't tell you what happens because it's a big spoiler, but it there, I really took issue with 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 that presentation right from the beginning that um, that the, the frontier was too hard, too, too, too harsh and awful, and these women went mad. Um, it was just such a ridiculous generalisation that you could only be one or the other. That you could either, you know, be a in kind of delicate and not be able to withstand it, or uh, and you know, Hilary Swank's character. There's they're constantly making sort of these this point that she's ugly and undesirable, and that's why she's not married and she's desperate for a husband and things like that. Um, so it doesn't start off from a great point, and it doesn't do much to subvert it. I have to say. That, so that's an example of something which people said is a feminist Western because it has a female character and focuses on an element of being a woman in the West. But I think it fails pretty spectacularly. Still a patriarchal uh, lens. Oh, yes, it is. And I won't tell you the, the, the massive spoiler, but yes, it is. I'll just say that. Um, but... On the other extreme, the example I thought of when I was when I was thinking about this is uh, in Mad Max, um, the third one, Beyond the Thunderdome, is um, Tina Turner's character, uh, Auntie Entity. In that, have any of you seen that yeah. one? Yeah, she's. And I mean, she she's great. <laughs> Come on, I, I feel like uh, as an Australian, it's kind of 
my responsibility to have seen Mad Max. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you're here here with it. <laughs> um, but anyway, her her character, you know, she's great. She's a leader of of Barter Town, um, and she's incredibly glamorous. She's very fierce. She's intelligent. And she's built this town. She's the leader. And yeah, she's ruthless and she's quite harsh. But, you know, she isn't... It isn't focused on the fact that her strength is masculine. You know, she's just a woman in that situation. And I think, I mean, George Miller always said he didn't want her to be a villain. He wanted her to be an antagonist because her and Max want different things. But she's not a villain And the way he wrote her was that he basically envisaged the character as someone who has this big backstory, who, you know, who's just ended up at this point as the leader of this town, who's trying to sort of hold it together. Um, So I think that's a really interesting example of a kind of dystopian post-apocalyptic landscape, which is incredibly harsh, but still has um, a woman in a position of power or in a non-subservient role. But I think you said something very important there is that she's glamorous and not necessarily traditionally, you know, air quotes feminine. Um, Because a lot of the women that you do end up seeing, I I think probably like Hilary Swank in that, that film you were discussing, but, you know, it becomes they're so hard that they lose what makes them women, you know, or they're, you know, as you say, you know, talked about as being ugly or whatever. It's they're no longer allowed to be, again, I feel like I want to put air quotes around anything, but soft, soft and, and, you know, that kind of, it's like if you're at all anything to do with kind of traditional ideas of femininity, you can't have that and still be strong. You can't have that and be tough enough to survive in the frontier. You end up having to be dirty and grubby and, and masculine in so many ways women can be tough and still be feminine. I don't understand why they think that they that can't exist. And I know that that's not something that we just see in, in Westerns or sci-fi Westerns, but it's irritating <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It goes the other way as well, though, I think. And this is this just example of like toxic patriarchal values is that while women they're not allowed to be women in in the the tough environment of the west same thing with men i think that you know if men are moved into the out of the tough environment they know like lose their toughness and it's like ridiculous these stereotypes are so strong that they kind of carry their own traits with them wherever they go they can't they can't be displaced yeah, like you'll get the kind of the rich homesteaders or whatever. And if they, because they no longer have to work the land but themselves, you know, they're kind of presented in often effeminate traits. You know, they'll have frilly shirts, whereas the. the oh, yes, the perfume. Yes, exactly. <laughs> whereas the real men, you know, they're dirty and what have you. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's so annoying. Can we not move past this? <laughs> Well, this is why I was so interested in First Cow, because I was like, this is brilliant. Just a depiction of male friendship focused on cake baking. This is what this is what I want from my my Westerns. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's yeah, you're right. It's the, those it's the trap of kind of the patriarchy and toxic masculinity in the sense that, you know, everyone's trapped by it. 
it, it's not it's not just women it's it's people of sort of all gender identities it was something i was very keen to avoid in tenlo um and it is a majority female and non-binary cast but you know i do have i do have sort of male cast members as, as well and uh silas is one of my favorites he's a pilot who basically just sort of wants to be left alone with his ship and smoke the off on world equivalent of weed uh in his cabin and he's he's very chill so that was really fun to write him and in such contrast to some of the other characters yeah he's a really good foil (laughs) i wanted to touch on something that that came up in a recent episode we had um where we were talking to gabriella houston who was incredibly articulate and just jaw-droppingly intelligent and made me feel very very small um She's wonderful. Um, But she was talking about how it's actually in times of great crisis and turmoil that we actually see sort of progress happen in terms of the women's movement and and so on. So, you know, an example being World War Two, World War One, when lots of the men went off. And so women suddenly started getting jobs that men had held before. And they basically proved that they could do the stuff that people told them beforehand that they couldn't do um so to me it, it's very interesting that when we kind of imagine especially when it comes to sort of sci-fi westerns because they're often set in the future you know we're imagining this time and place that's really difficult and yet we aren't seeing these times as as times of progress whereas our history would suggest that they may well be. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it depends. And I, a friend of mine just wrote an article actually about the, the optimism inherent in Star Trek and why that's part of what makes it such a, a comforting uh, thing to have in your life. And so I think, you know, there, there is kind of in elements of Star Trek, looking at it as... Um, a kind of optimistic society that has progressed further than we have. And you'll be able to talk about that with uh, probably greater clarity than I will. But I, I don't know, we have a fascination with dystopias, don't we? And possibly, again, it's it's what people have always said about science fiction. You know, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen. It tells you what's happening now and the problems that we're facing now. So maybe that's, that's part of this fascination with um, kind of dystopian worlds. It's kind of extrapolating some of the ideas that we're faced with at the present moment um, and seeing them play out and seeing ways out of them or people people living their lives despite their um, surroundings um, rather than being defined by them. Do you think gender equality is somehow incompatible with dystopian worlds? I have I have no idea. I really don't. Um it depends on the dystopia, I suppose. In my own work, I don't know. I wouldn't call. I mean, is see, my work might be a dystopia, in some senses. I'd say it's, but it's not one predicated on gender inequality, um, per se. It's dystopia and dystopian in other, in other ways, sort of more economic and societal ways, sort of looking at kind of the colonialist attitude towards colonizing new planets and you know gender inequality doesn't particularly feature in that probably more from necessity because in a place where like like megan was just saying 
where people are needed, where bodies are needed, soldiers are needed, um, gender sort of becomes irrelevant in, in that, the world that I was writing anyway. Yeah, you use the assets that you have. Yeah, like there's, there, exactly. There's no, um, you know, you, you're not in a position of privilege to be able to say, oh, well, women have to do this and men have to do that. Exactly, especially if you, those ideas have become archaic at some point in the past as well, which in, in my world, I sort of assumed that they had. Um, conversely, what about utopian societies? I kind of feel like uh, we don't see as much of them. No, is that? I mean, it might be the times we're living in. It's uh, quite hard sometimes to imagine them. I was thinking about this the other day um, with Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which is a bit of an influence on on me as well and on, on this book, um, with the idea of the planet being a sort of um, anarchist utopia and it's sort of being a frontier in its its own way as a sort of developing um, idea of a place and of a world, which is then thrown into very sharp contrast when it's juxtaposed with the sort of capitalist um, society, twin twin world. And that's probably one of the more interesting utopias that I've read because it's not presented as, I mean, it, it's critical of other societies but it's not presented as the uh, the one answer um it's kind of a thought experiment do you think it's possible to have a utopian society built on the idea of a frontier because whenever you think about a frontier you always think about hardship and people falling into naturally sort of gender specific roles like the women stay at home and look after the kids and the guys go out and either do the hunting of the outlaws or the tending of the fields and i kind of feel like it's so far away from what a lot of people today feel is gender a gender equality that it couldn't form the basis of a utopian society because it's just it's just so radically different does that make sense yeah i mean w- one place i've come across that and it was an interesting one was um in temi o's um do you dream of terror 2 um which is you know a, a group of young people heading towards um a potential new earth basically and and that was interesting because this sort of earth that they were heading towards is you know very fertile and it's it's empty um of people but it has everything that they'll need um so i guess it's that it's that situation of sort of abundance um which in in the sort of frontier setting it's kind of emptiness and abundance which will then allow uh, this kind of u- more utopian frontier to be inhabited. And it's sort of only brought up towards the end of the book, but it was a really interesting element, I think, of the narrative. So Westerns, the setting of, you know, the, the desert and that kind of the the bleak, arid, you know, t- rolling tumbleweeds, is that an essential part of the western because that i feel like a lot of you know modern westerns or or even the ones that we call sci-fi westerns it's it's always because they have that aspect to it they have that part of, of also a, a lack of resources you know that people are fighting over resources they're trying to to start something where there isn't that abundance i mean is is that a necessary element for it to be a Western? I mean, it's necessary. It's sort of, it's interesting because it's, it's almost like the set dressing, isn't it, of um, of the genre. 
Um, and I think something you said there about the sort of the lack of resources um, and people sort of having to to struggle in that environment is quite interesting because often where where there's no law as well, I think part of what makes that you know the Western setting or the frontier setting or the space space Western setting what it is is kind of people coming face to face with how they behave when there is no law when no one's going to come along and punish you or make you answer for what you've done. Um, it's just you and your conscience. Um, and I think that is quite integral to the sort of harshness of the setting um, in terms of pushing people potentially to a limit where they have to make those decisions, the, the decisions that they, they would never ever have to make in a sort of a town or a city or a comfortable environment. I was thinking about what Megan said and the idea of not having a lot of resources and not having much law within the setting. And it makes me wonder if dystopia is something that non-American people use as a sort of replacement for Westerns. Because if you think about English history, it's not really any time that we've had anything like that where we fought over resources and had no law. Or we have, but in a different way. It's been a very sort of feudal system. It, it seems to me that Westerns very much embody a sort of an American spirit. And I wonder if we tend to sort of put that on dystopias when you're sort of a, a more English writer, because that's the best way we can think of having our own kind of countryside and our own regions mimicking those same um, elements, that, like Megan was saying, of the, the lack of resources. That's really interesting um, in terms of how how the westerns because obviously with the western genre there's always been a back and forth between um sort of samurai films feeding into westerns feeding back into samurai films and so it's some sometimes the western seems sort of so uh embedded in the kind of genre history it's quite hard to kind of pull it out and imagine kind of what what it might be like from other other perspectives or if it wasn't wasn't there and kind of um a dystopia reimagined but there's um i keep i keep talking about films sorry about that there's there's an indonesian film called marlene and the murderer and four acts by a director called um muli Sur- surya um and that's uh, an indonesian set western so it's set on but again interestingly it's set on a very stark um and dusty kind of island but on, although it does sort of incorporate more sort of indonesian values in the characters um the setting is still still kind of similar. So I, I think it's part of the, the language of it sometimes of the genre. Yeah, how that um, feeds into the sort of dystopian elements of the Western. It's so embedded in there. So we're talking about how, you know, the, the deserts and these kind of bleak places and settings really do kind of give us that set dressing and, and kind of make us feel like we're in a Western. And when you look at Han Solo as a character, people say, well, he is, you know, a very typical gunslinger trope from the Western. And we can recognize him because we see him first on Tatooine, which is a desert planet. And it's all, you know, and, and Mos Eisley, this, this spaceport is, is on the edge and it's all very much the whole set dressing of it is a western but if we met han solo on you know the ice planet hoth would we have seen him as a gunslinger 
I don't know. It's interesting. It's even in his costume, isn't it? The yes. way he's dressed. Yeah. And I think the the first Star Wars in particular has a lot in common with um, with the Western, kind of in the way it's structured, um, and particularly Moss Eisley. I mean, come on. It's a saloon. That it is. Especially on the canti- and the cantina. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. It's like those Hollywood um, kind of shortcuts, like you were saying, towards telling us what kind of character he is and i haven't watched the mandalorian but i don't know if that's the same there if anyone if any of you've watched it i have watched it of course i have it's star wars and pedro pascal yeah, I I mean, come on <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's obvious um i would say that there's definitely elements of that and i would say there you have possibly more instances where you don't have say the desert necessarily as kind of the the background atmosphere but you still do have whenever they're going to like other small villages or or things where they are struggling for resources and for to to live and exist on kind of harsh environments or whatever they might still be they might be green actually but they're not they're still not very I don't want to say civilized, but you know they, they're not very progressed technologically, um, which is actually okay. This is gonna <laughs> I'm gonna blend into another point here because one thing that I've seen with sci-fi westerns in particular is how you have this kind of completely bizarre mix of high technology with a society that is really quite, you know, feudal, living off the land, uh, doesn't have a lot of medicine and all this kind of stuff. And yet, like, their war technology is, um, you know, incredible. Or, or you know, at some point, there, there just seems to be massive inequality in terms of the technology and advancements that they have. And yet, the society is still feels like it could really be the Wild West. Now, I knew this was going to come up eventually, <laughs> I knew it. And I knew someone was going to say, well, they've got spaceships, why don't they have phones? <laughs> and I would have to answer it. Um, and it's interesting. It's sort of... It's the type of world building that... I mean, I obviously am interested in it, but it's less important to me than the characters within that setting. Um and in in the world that that I was writing, you do obviously have space travel and and you have ships and but in my kind of view of things, it's just developed in in different ways and resources are so sparse and a tech is so prized um, that people are resi- they resort to lo-fi um, solutions basically, which are either cobbled together or they're out of date. Or this tech does exist somewhere in the universe. It just doesn't exist here. Um, and phones spoil things sometimes if people can communicate immediately. Uh, that sometimes throws the story right off. So, I mean, there's I've obviously taken a fair amount of artistic license, but hopefully for the reader, it's kind of, it's less about the minutiae of um, the technology in the world and more about what the characters face in that setting. No, I, I do think, though, uh, sometimes we can get a bit bogged down in, um, you know, in, in details like that. And I, 
As somebody who has never written science fiction, I feel like it would be the bane of my existence having to decide what to put in and what to leave out. Because as you so rightly say, having a mobile phone to communicate with someone instantly is difficult to work. Problematic. Narrative tension. Well, you you say that, but, you know, Starks also mentioned Ursula Le Guin and the whole kind of Anish cycle of books is based on the idea that they've invented uh, instantaneous communication across the galaxy. So it it can work. Yeah, but then obviously that's a... That must be a kind of central facet of of the world building, in which case it's kind of... It's not a something that you have to work in and find excuses for. Sci-fi westerns. I mean, these... In particular, this is a genre mashup that seems to really work. Why do you think it works so well? I mean, what is it about these two separate genres that work so well? I think we love the idea of kind of... um, Well, there's two facets to either. There's either sort of the lone... um, the kind of lone gunman or lone bounty hunter, um, the kind of Ronin kind of wandering, wandering through literal space, encountering these communities or conflicts and then moving on. Kind of sometimes they're a catalyst, sometimes they just observe. Um, or alternatively, you have, um, you know, some, a very popular aspect of a lot of space opera, which is sort of found family, which is a group of these wanderers find themselves as a crew um, which we see in sort of things like Cowboy Bebop and Firefly to an extent and kind of end up wandering together. So I think there's an element of it's the sort of the trap and the the dream of um, freedom in a sense of being uh, presented with space, infinite space. Um, and I suppose like space itself is is a bit like kind of being lost in the desert in that it's presents you with infinite possibility but also potentially could just kill you if you're underprepared or underequipped uh, to deal with it so i think there's a lot of that sort of the attraction of the unknown and roaming about and encountering adventure i wonder also if there's something about the other because you have that very unimaginative <laughs> sort of representation of aliens as you know the the kind of the american indians or the the aborigines in australia you know when you look at something like claire coleman's terra nullius you've got an example of how the settlers came to australia and what they did to the aborigines and what maybe aliens would do if they came to earth and how they would treat us and i think it's a very similar thing about how you know, we go out in search of new planets and, and finding life in the galaxy. And on the one hand, we're excited about this. But on the other, it's kind of we just want to prove how we're better than them and how we can put them down or bring civilization to them. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this goes back to the sort of the history of violence as well. Um, and how, you know, the US and violence are, are just linked they're interlinked because that's how the country was formed and the same with the same with the uk um and england in many ways um going back to this myth of of how the country began and this is something i know lucy you've looked at a lot with your work and with sister song kind of the the depiction of 
of the other is um yes like you say something to be mastered uh because it's coming from a point of view that the invading force or the colonizers are are the pinnacle and do know best and there is no other worldview they are the center so um there's there's definitely elements of that and and again this is something that i would love to read more about and see see explored um and especially in the western see it thoroughly the view of the west from a purely kind of white point of view thoroughly dismantled because it deserves to be um we had to listen to stories of the west told in in the same voices for all of these years and it uh i think it's it's high time that it was thoroughly uh taken down turned inside out and we heard it from other perspectives as well well i think that sounds like a perfect place to wrap things up it's always nice to end on a hopeful note so Thank you very much for joining us, Stark, and sharing your quite scary knowledge of niche films. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, if anyone wants any niche science fiction um, film recommendations or Western recommendations, then hit me up. I'm always happy to talk about those. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.